Paul writes to Timothy at one point, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this is from Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And of course, the Bible, the Scripture he discusses in that particular point, is the Old Testament, right? That's primarily what they're going to be reading at that point in time. Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to read Psalm 76 today, and we're going to think through it. Now, were there any extra handouts by any chance? Okay. So you may use your Bible if you wish. Um, I have on every table should be two copies, at least, of this. This is Psalm 76, which we're going to go for, in four different translations. So this is the full text. Feel free to use your own if you want. Some of you have other translations as well. By all means, reference them as we go through. And we are going to um, just read the text and practice, essentially, thinking through the text together today. You'll see four different translations. The ESV, which is usually the one I use. Uh, the KGV, which is often used here, the Net Bible, which some of you use, and you're going to see Altar on the bottom right-hand side. I wanted to include in this, uh, instead of just a standard translation, an individual's translations. Often these can be very useful. Uh, committees, um, Committees tend to clamp down on eccentricities, uh, and so that's kind of a good thing. And so ESV, KJV, the net are all committee translations. And as a general use Bible, I think that's that's actually generally pretty good. However, using single person translations can sometimes be very interesting. You'll often see them in commentaries. Sometimes commentaries, when they do a commentary, they will just do their own translation. Uh, this one is by a fellow named Robert Alter. He is a Hebrew and comparative literature teacher at Berkeley. And so he came out with this translation just a few years ago. Uh, I've found it interesting. It it, uh, also has interesting notes. So just as a three committee translations and one individual translation uh, as a comparison. All right. So whenever we're reading a psalm, I would like to think of it this way. Uh, We're going to want to answer three big questions, and we will not have time to get through all all of these today and the psalm. But we will get started. Three big questions are this. How do we interpret and best appreciate the psalm? How do we use it to alter how we think? Right, We read scripture to change how we think. And very much related to that, how do we use a psalm for prayer and for worship? All right, Or in another way, how do we use the psalm to change how we speak about God publicly or privately when we pray to him? Let's talk about interpreting and appreciating psalms. Um, Generally speaking, it's a good idea to use the Bible in multiple translations. And the reason why is translation always involves some level of interpretation. All right? Anyone who says, oh, I want a literal translation because I don't want the translator interpreting things for me, this is a fallacy, and they do not know about which they talk. All translations are interpretations, and so sometimes it's best to have multiple translations and compare them. All right? And sometimes also, just from a practical matter, uh, diff- the wording may differ a little bit, and just reading it in different words may go, oh, now I understand what they're trying to say. In this other translation, they just didn't word it quite as well, or at least not in a way that clicked with you. And so in general, I think 
reading with multiple translations is a good idea. Or studying the original languages, really a combination of, of all of them is a good idea. Um, so that's, I think, generally true. I think that's doubly true when you have uh, poetry. And so that's why we are hitting a piece of poetry. All of the Psalms are poetry. And it's, I think, doubly important to do this for this. So that's why you have four translations, and we're going to go through it together today in that sense. So first of all, when you're going to interpret, I do recommend, when you really want to sit down and understand, use multiple translations. When you're using something, it's also generally good, especially in poetry, to look for particular literary conventions. We've talked about reading Hebrew poetry before, Psalms, Proverbs, various parts of the prophets, various other pieces in the Old Testament. You're going to look for parallelism. All right. If we just look, for example, at Psalm 76, verse 1, in Judah, and this is from the ESV, in Judah God is known, his name is great in Israel. All right. So, first verse has like two lines, and they're both about the same subject. Being known, name is great. All right. Second verse, his abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. Okay. They are trying to communicate the same thing by repetition. Verse 3, there he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Line 1, line 2, covering something that is related in some way. That's important to recognize. We'll also want to recognize various different um, figures of speech. Like, for example, metonymy. There's actually metonymy in the first verse. Metonymy, does anybody know what metonymy is? Metonymy is using a word related to a thing to talk about the thing. Uh, examples. When we say the White House, what are we talking about? We're not talking about the building. What's that? We're talking about Washington, D.C., and really, often more specifically, the president, right? Um, Congress, we would separate out, generally. So White House, it's, uh, it's Biden, right? How about Silicon Valley? Technology, the tech industry, we're talking Twitter, Facebook, those types of folks, right? Uh, we're not actually talking about a particular valley made of silicon, right? When you say Silicon Valley. Or when, when someone says someone, um, oh, the suits are coming. <laughs> the big wigs, the executives, the, yeah, that kind of stuff. All right, so that's metonymy. You're talking about something, suits, that is related to the thing, to tell about the thing, but isn't actually the thing. All right. You don't care that suits are walking to your office. All right. Um, you, you care about who it is. And then, of course, metaphors, where somebody talks about something with different wording entirely to show an image. And so when you're reading poetry, poetry is going to have more of this all right, than prose will often have. Prose, you'll see these things um, as well sometimes. But in poetry, that's especially true. Okay, so let's, let's actually start. Let's jump in. Let's read together. And um, does anybody have a, a preference for a translation we're going to read from today? Since we all have it, we can read together. Anyone? Okay, let's do the ESV together. Let's read. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. His dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Salah. 
Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into deep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Next page. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Okay. Let's go back to verse 1, and let's think about verses 1 through 3. And what I want you to do is I want you to spend a few minutes. All right, this will be a few minutes of silence. And I want you to read uh, the first three verses several times in all of the translations. Okay? And then we will discuss.
Okay. What's the point of verse 1? That's the first question. The second one is, what is um, notably different between the translations? I guess the meaning of number one is fairly fairly obvious. Maybe. Maybe. What thoughts? Anybody see any difference between them? Okay, that's true because we have brought the metaphor, we're comfortable with the metaphor in English. All right, what's the difference between name and, and reputation? All right, what's your name? Your name's Chip. All right, is that the same as your reputation? Oh, not. <laughs> no, all right. And so, this is a common thing in the Hebrew Bible when it talks about the name of God. All right. Often it's actually referring not to his specific name, but specifically to his reputation. All right. And so we can see right here amongst the, the four different translations we're looking at. All right. You can see sort of a translation philosophy here. All right. This is, for example, a figure of speech. All right. Perhaps you call it a metonymy. All right. Your name is associated with your reputation. Um, the ESV keeps the metonymy, as does the KGV, as does Alter. The Net Bible removes it. Alright? This is a this is a, this is a literal versus a non-literal translation in this case, for sure. Alright? Uh, it doesn't say reputation, it says name. Is it talking about God's reputation? Absolutely it's talking about God's reputation. So it is it is not a bad translation, it is just a, a different philosophy. So they are taking the figure of speech away from you and translating it, which is good and bad. You can you can argue for both, it's fine. So this is clearly a psalm about God, right? In Judah, God is known. His reputation is great in Israel. And we start unfolding that as we go along. Verse 2. Let's think about this one right here. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. Alright? Any thoughts on these translations and their differences? What's the difference between living and dwelling? Okay. Where is Salem and where is Zion? Okay. Alright, where is Zion? Yeah, he's not dwelling in two places at once, right? Zion, we know, often refers to Mount, the mountain of Jerusalem. Okay? Now, what about Salem? You've got Melchizedek, king of Salem, right? Translated king of peace. This is a reference to, they're both references to Jerusalem, right? Melchizedek was king of Jerusalem at the time in Genesis. Here, his abode is established in Salem. His dwelling place in Zion. So not living at two different places. So God lives where? All right. The imagery here is God lives in Zion. And so we see something. All right. We start picking out of this imagery. And that imagery is the imagery of a mountain. All right. And when God lives in Zion, what that's saying is, he lives, 
He lives on top of a mountain. Right? He lives in the heights. Often the Old Testament talks about God being up high. This is part of it. Right? This is part of that particular language. Now there's something specific about the KJV uh, that I want to point out that all of the others avoid and I think that's, that's probably a useful thing. In Salem also is his tabernacle. All right? Tabernacle as a technical term right, is talking about that, well, that tent. Right? The tent they used whenever they were traveling in the wilderness and until the point at which they created the temple. So that's the tabernacle. Right? Um, this is not what this is referring to. All, right? all the other translations, I assume, on purpose, avoid to- tabernacle to avoid that. It's a different word. And so they say, not tabernacle. One thing, um, one interesting way of translating the, the second one here, the dwelling place in here, would be like a din. As if, for example, God is a lion. We'll come back to that. But regardless, he lives... He dwells in Zion slash Jerusalem. Yes? Alter says pavilion. Mm-hmm. Were they trying to relate the same thing to tabernacle? I think he was trying to say uh, tent without saying tabernacle, is my guess. He did not have a comment specifically on that rendering. He often does in these. Um, there's like several in here that are very interesting. And by the way, if you see any spelling mistakes or punctuation mistakes like there is in verse 5, um, I don't have an electronic, electronic copy of this one, so I actually typed it in. And so that's my mistake, not actually his. And so there's two commas at the end of the first line of verse 5. That's wrong. So if you see any other spelling or mistakes like that, don't blame Mr. Alter. Okay, so that's verse 2. What's our picture? God's name is great. Where does he dwell? Up here, and this mountain imagery will be important. Now we get more context in verse 3. Tell me, what's the general context other than place? He's winning the battle. He's winning the battle, all right? Where did he win the battle? At Zion. So whatever this is talking about, all right, and some people like would say, maybe this is like the Assyrian invasion under Sennacherib, 701 BC. They attacked Jerusalem, all right, and they lost. God defeated them, all right. It's miraculous. God did defeat them. So that that would be a good setting for this. It doesn't have to be that, but it certainly would make sense. So there's an army of people. All right, here's our image coming up to attack Salem, attack Jerusalem. And there, God broke the flashing arrows, or break the arrows of the bow, or shattered the arrows, or there he did shatter the bow's fiery shafts. That's the first line. All right? You've got some variation there, uh, because there is imagery behind this. It's like... Um, more literally, it's like he broke the, the, the flames of, of the bow. All right? What would the flames of a bow be? Well, it's the arrows that you're shooting. So. And so this comes across in different ways. In the second line of this verse, what's different, interestingly, among the various translations? Well, 
What's that? Weapons of the war or the battle. Right, this is another potentially potential place for metonymy, where the translators make different choice. It literally says battle. Does that make sense? He broke the shield, the sword, in the battle? Or does it make more sense to say the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war? And so that's, once again, another translational choice between, between all of these. Now, do any of these translations' differences make ma a major difference in our understanding? Change our doctrine? No. But they do change the flavor in many ways as we go through it. Like if you see in verse, verse 2, in Salem also is his tabernacle, and you think of the tabernacle, that makes you think of something fancier than I think is going on here. Because right? the, the tabernacle, it's a tent. It was an incredibly fancy tent. All right? It was extremely ornate. All right, so this is, so you don't think of a, you know, you pitch a tent in your backyard. It's not that kind of tabernacle. It's beautiful. And so that gives you a different idea than just his hut, for example, would be a reasonable translation for a dwelling place. Or, or den, as in like the den of a lion. Not fancy, but all places where you live. Okay, so here's our image. We have an enemy coming up to Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem on a mountain. So enemy coming up and there. God breaks their arrows, their swords, their shields, and their weapons of war, or the battle in general. Okay? Any questions before we move on? I think it's interesting how some of them say broke, which to me just means, you know, like popping into. Mm -hmm. And the word shattered to me has more power. It does, yes. So I, I think it's interesting how they use the, the words to kind of convey the mm -hmm. picture. Yeah, that's a, that is a good point. Yeah, it's one of those that doesn't change the meaning, but you're right. Shatter has a much stronger, stronger feel to it. Also, in verse one, um, in the Nath Bible, it seems like they're putting more emphasis on God revealing Himself rather than just God was known. It says God has revealed Himself, so it's more of an active. You're right. Absolutely right. And keep note of that, there will be some others where you'll see passive versus active. All right? Uh, like, for example, if you um, look, at, look at verse 7. All right? But you, you are to be feared, ESV. Even, you, thou, even thou art to be feared. You are awesome. Yes, you. You Oh, fearsome are you. All right. So both the nut and the altar go for a more active translation. All right. Where the ESV and the KJV go more for this passive. It's probably just English choice. You know, they say use less passive voice when you're writing prose in English because it sounds more dynamic, sounds better. It could be just simply that. Okay, let's, let's spend a few minutes and I want you to read verses four through six and ponder and then we will discuss.
Okay, hey Chip, what does the NIV have for verse 4? You are resplendent with might, more majestic than mountains rich with game. Valiant men lie plundered, they sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, O Thomas and chariot, lie still. Okay, thank you. So, you will find, as you will look, an interesting difference of translation here in verse 4, right? as it talks about God. You've got glorious, standard way of talking about God in the ESV. <coughs> glorious, KJV, same way. You shine brightly and, you know, once again, the, the eccentricities, refulgent, all right? Refulgent from, from altar, where you've got the, the shining refulgent image from the net Bible and the altar, an altar which you're taking a little bit more liberty here, where you've just got the glorious um, in the ESV, in the KJV. Now, this verse I think is very interesting because it sets a lot of the, the flavor of things before and after if you take it a certain way. All right. Better than the, or greater than the, if we take the uh, ESV, more majestic than the mountains, full of prey. All right, so if you think about prey, all right, here's, here's an animal, all right? It's beautiful, beautiful animal, okay? Um, I know, it's great. What is prey? Is sheep prey? It is prey or it isn't. Sometimes, when is it when is it prey and when is it not? Mm -hmm. If something's coming after it and kills it, it becomes prey. You can't have prey without. Okay, who's the predator? Here, God is the predator. All right, who's the prey? The enemy. All right, and so this very, I think, decisively starts painting. All right, God here as a predatory animal protecting his home. 
This is why it would actually be very reasonable to go with verse 3, or excuse me, verse 2, and say in his, in his den. His den is in Zion. And you might have noticed in verse 6, altar goes with this metaphor, all right, by your roar, all right. He definitely takes God as an animal picking up on this, on this imagery. And so the imagery here is there is, there's animals coming up here. But there is a predator up on the mountain, all right? The predator has nothing to fear from the prey. And as they come up the mountain, he is going to do what? He is going to track them down and kill them, all right? So, God as the predator. And it's not just a few prey, all right? It's a, the mountain's full of prey. Why are they full of prey? It's an army surrounding Jerusalem. There's people all over these mountains. Therefore, the mountain is full of prey because God is the predator. All right. So that adds, I think, an interesting piece to this. So it's, it's here's the enemies. All right. They dare to approach the den of the Lion of Judah. And he is going to make them his prey. Now, you've got in all of the translations, um, except for one, a very similar pattern. What's the outlier here? What's that? The net. All right. Now, they, they take a grammatical, a different grammatical choice on this one. All right. And you can definitely see here. Right. You definitely see this image of the, the predator and the prey. You shine brightly and reveal your majesty as you descend from the hills where you killed your prey. As you descend, right, the prey is coming up the mountain. The predator descends the mountain and kills his prey. All right, so they definitely went with that and, and making a grammatical choice, but using, using context and go, Okay, here's God as predator. This is our best way to translate this. And so it really comes out more clearly there in the net than it does in the others. Now, yeah, Chip. Is this going to be a bad joke? It is, in fact, a bad joke. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yes, in fact, that is true. All right. So what does this say about God as predator? Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Well, it depends on who you are, right? If you are the prey, this is not a good thing. But from the psalmist's perspective, refulgent you were, all right? Or you shine brightly, all right, as you hunt down your enemy. And this goes back to verse 1, all right? In Judah, God is known. His reputation is great in Israel. Why is his reputation great in Israel? Because when the enemy came up, God made them his prey, like a predator, and defeated them. Therefore, God is refulgent, or shining brightly, majestic, and so forth. All right? Sometimes you have to slow down and read the Psalms and try to think through the context and what's going on. It really helps. And, of course, the multiple translations really helps as well. Yes, absolutely. That is a fantastic point. 
the, the, like you said, it's not specifically Assyria, if it is them that is the problem here. It's when people, I mean, this is a common thing in the Psalms, right? What happens when, when people array themselves against God and His anointed, all right? What happens when the enemies of God go against the people of God? Well, God's not afraid. We might be afraid. We shouldn't be afraid. God's not afraid because He, in the words here, He is the, well, he is the predator that will protect His people. So, yes. Definitely something very applicable. So, glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains of prey. This is going to be the more common translation because it's more of a literal thing. Um, but the image there is important to, to catch on to. Verse 5. What about that one? got multiple sleeps here. You actually have one in six as well. All right. So, and there are different words for sleep, which, which is why me why they they can sometimes be translated different ways. All right. But yes, the Net Bible is very clearly on the they fell asleep, right? They were killed, right? Predators don't make prey fall asleep, right? That's not how this works. All right. They they, they will ultimately they will kill them there. So ESV, you've got, they sank into sleep, all right? Or they have slept their sleep, KJV. There's a, some redundancy there, but that's fine. It's just reflecting the underlying text. Bravehearted were plundered. They fell asleep, as we just read, and they fell into a trance with altar. Um, is the, I don't like altar as well at this point, because you've got trance and then stunned at that point. It is true when the refulgent God all right, shows himself, all right, he is in fact going to stun his enemies. So it's not terribly wrong. I do think the idea here more is it's, it's death, all right? Where the, well, the, the beast of prey came and defeated his enemies by killing them. All right, what about this? Uh, what else is different about the translations in verse 5? That sleep for death thing that comes up all the time in Scripture. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus sees Our friend Lazarus is asleep. And they're like, oh, well, then he's resting. He's been sick. That's a good thing. And he's like, well, no, you missed my point. He's dead. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it, they use it all the time. Mm-hmm. Yes, very good. Yep. softening it to say they fell asleep. It's just an idiom. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a way of speaking. Yes, that's true. Can I comment on the trance thing? Yes, please. So, um, when I hear or see the word trance here, that, that makes me think of more of like a supernatural thing. Like we see like mm-hmm. hypn- people put people in a trance or whatever. It's like a mystical thing. Meditative trance of some sort, yeah. Exactly, but what the psalmist seems to be saying, it's a very natural predator-prey kind of, you know, it, it's a very natural thing. And then when you use the word trance, it seems a little mystical to me. And I don't think that really flows well. I'm with you. 
I'm with you on that. In verse 5, yeah. Some of the idea of, of that, like, verse 6 with the roar, yeah. it, it's almost like the, the trance or the stun is like they're just, they're, they're petrified. They're so scared and, and yeah. impotent and can do nothing at the sound of the roar of God. You know, it's, it can fit. Yeah. Right. In the context, yeah. What's he trying to say on a, on, from a big from a big picture? It's it's a choice. But even if you're stupefied, I do think trance is a is a poor choice in the in the shocked, stupefied world. What would it mean for you to lose your hands or not find your hands? None of the men of, and this is the KJV translation, verse 5, the last stanza. None of the men of might have found their hands. Yeah, you can't fight. You can't defend yourself. Because if, if you're a warrior and there's an enemy coming at you, I can't find my hands. All right? it's, it's, it's an idiom of... Right, they they are unable to use their hands in ESV. Right, uh, the warriors like really taking the metaphor out. All right, in in the Net Bible, all the warriors were helpless. All right, correct meaning, removing the metaphor, you don't see it anymore. And all the men of valor could not lift a hand. All right, sticking somewhat with the metaphor in an altar there. All right, and so they couldn't fight back. All right, in verse six. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Both the chariot, at thy rebuke, KJV, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and the horse are cast into a dead sleep. At the sound of the, your battle cry, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse fell asleep. Once again, being very, with scare quotes, very, very clear there. By your roar, O God of Jacob, chariot and horse were stunned. What about this one? We've already mentioned the obvious one, altar, is out different than the others with the roar, and I like it a lot, right? Because it, it sticks with the with the image of, of God as the as the lion. Alright. Now in this one, I actually kind of like the stunned idea. Alright? It's you don't get killed by a roar, alright? You could be shocked, alright? So that, that one kind of works. Um, but Net Bible's very clear on the... Uh, fell asleep, all right? In, in the KJV, into a dead sleep. Hmm? ESV, both rider and horse lay stunned. Okay? What's, look at the very last line. Okay? The ones on the right are similar in a way that are different than the ones on the left. Chariot, all right? Is it chariot or rider? This is a metonymy. Chariots don't get stunned. Chariots don't get scared. They're wooden metal, all right? Talking about the chariots, talking about the rider. And so in KJV and altar, they keep the, the figure of speech. ESV and net, they remove the figure of speech at that point. 
You know, we've got a whole half of a psalm to go, and we definitely do not have time to do that. Uh, And so, Lord willing, we'll pick up with that next Lord's Day. Let's spend five minutes, and then we'll dismiss, five minutes or less, and talk about, all right, how do we use this to better understand God or ourselves? And how do we use this to pray and worship? Yeah. See, this is why I'm a Septuagint holy guy. <laughs> the Septuagint has some interesting translations here, differences. Worth discussing sometime. What do we think? And the outlier is not always wrong. No. Right? Sometimes you need the outlier to sort of break the consensus. Right? But generally speaking, you're right. Outliers are often wrong. And it's good to have a consensus and go, okay, here's what everybody thinks. Let's take this outlier with a little less seriousness. What else? Jennifer's already mentioned one about how we would apply these things. All right. What does this tell us about God? Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, this is this is a non-joke, by the way. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Um, certain, you know, certain. Usually, ninety-nine percent of times, the translations don't affect our understanding of doctrine, like you said. Yeah. But sometimes they do. Um, an example is in Revelation one, when it says uh, the angels signify to, to John or to be communicated. Some words have communicated. Some have. Um, some have, you know, made known, and if you if you study the Greek, the word is esamino, which most correctly means signifying. That that can change your entire interpretation of Revelation just from that one word. Mm-hmm. And it does sometimes matter. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. Yeah. But even there, right? It might change your reading for that area or for that book. It doesn't change. Oh, this changes the major doctrine of the Christian faith, right? Yeah. Generally speaking, that's not going to be the case. All right. So what about God? What does this say about God? What is God's nature that we can see from this? He's a warrior and he's victorious. He's a warrior and he's victorious? On behalf of whom? He fights for his people. He fights for his people. Okay. How do you fit that into prayer and worship? How do you fit this notion into prayer? It's, it's an obvious question, so... What's the obvious answer? How do you fit this into prayer and worship? And should you? All right. When you're in worship, when you're in conversation, all right, you can talk about God the warrior who fights for his people. Mm-hmm. 
grief and attacks, and we're going to see. But we know that if we trust in Him, He's going to give us that strength. Yes. And protect us. So it's a basis of confidence and also a basis of prayer when you are under attack. Yes. All right? Pray to God the warrior. Or pray to God the predator. All right? Who can, who can fight your enemies and keep you safe. Yeah. Any final thoughts before we dismiss for the day? And uh, spend a little time in fellowship before we go next door? be done for now. Roy, will you pray for us, please? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for allowing us to learn about you, Lord, and to compare these translations and try to understand what the psalmist was trying to say, Lord. Thank you that you are a predator, Lord, that you are a warrior, and that you fight for us. I ask that you would help us to always put you first in our lives and to not only let you fight for us, but to fight for you, Lord. I ask that you would bless our worship today in Jesus' name. Amen.